You're listening to the Hindu Business Lines Field Notes podcast with T.R. Vivek. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Field Notes, the weekly podcast on all things agribusiness from BL. I'm your host, T.R. Vivek. Agriculture is both a cause and a victim of the consequences of climate change. In the previous episode of Field Notes, we spoke to Renuka Divan, a young scientist who had founded a startup called BioPrime to help farmers fight the adverse effects of climate conditions through biosciences formulations. But at the same time, India's agriculture is uh, also a climate change contributor. It accounts for about 20% of natural gas emissions. If India's agriculture sector was an independent country, it would be seventh highest generator of greenhouse gases, ranking above Brazil, Korea, Canada, and Mexico. India has more than 100 million smallholder farmers with limited capacity and incentive to reduce their carbon footprint. It has the largest cattle population as well. Nearly a third of the world's cattle live here. And India is the second largest producer of rice, a crop that accounts for 2.5% of greenhouse gas emissions. Can agriculture, and to our specific interest, Indian agriculture, can it be, it is part of the problem, but can it be part of the solution? Uh, what can entrepreneurs in this sector and investors who fund them do to address this? To discuss the issue, I am today joined by Mark Khan, the managing partner and co-founder at Omnivore. Omnivore is uh, one of the few venture capital firms in the country that invests exclusively in agri and agri-tech startups. Before co-founding Omnivore in 2010, Mark was Executive Vice President for Strategy and Business Development at Godrej Agrovet. He has an MBA from Harvard Business School and is the co-chairman of the CII's task force on agri-startups. Welcome to Field Notes, Mark. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Mark, tell us a little bit about Omnivore. This is one of the few VC firms in the agri space. Why this attachment to this sector, given the hardships and the uncertainties involved? And a little bit about your own personal attachment to Indian agri. Sure. I mean, I think the, the hardship's the point. I don't come from a finance background. I come from an agriculture and agribusiness background. I moved to India originally in 2007-8 with Godraj Agrovet as part of the turnaround of that company and had a chance to work in Indian agriculture deeply for you know six years in, in an operating capacity. Godraj uh, Agrovet being one of the largest animal nutrition companies in India, but also into agrochemicals, into poultry and a variety of other spaces. And it was a wonderful education in smallholder agriculture and the challenges faced by farmers in India. Omnivore was originally launched um, many, many, many years ago, specifically to address those challenges. Um, we looked in you know, 2010, 11, and saw that, that despite the fact that, that agriculture is 25% of India's economy, Right is you know roughly half of uh, half of employment, thirteen crore people. Despite all of these, you know, all of this significance, the amount of venture capital going into the agricultural sector was just absolutely minuscule. Right, there was no interest by traditional VC in in this critical backbone of of the Indian economy, and so we started Omnivore knowing it was going to be hard, knowing that we were going to be the first, knowing that it was going to be a long long slog, and it was. But we're very proud that all these years later, 
right, over a decade later, there, you know, has been, at least for the last few years, an increasing amount of interest uh, from investors in, in transformative startups in the agricultural sector and a recognition that agriculture cannot be left to languish, that it is a critical part of, our, of, of India's future, that, that India doesn't have a future without agriculture. And, uh, you know, we, we like to think that we've played a small part in that. Mm-hmm. What are the factors that inhibit participation of investors like you in the agri sector? Well, I mean, I think that was more of a past tense thing than a present tense thing. Look, I, I think let's let's understand for a second that that saying investors is um, a one size fits all word that doesn't add a lot of clarification or value. Omnivore is a venture capital firm. We're an impact venture capital firm that looks at early stage enterprises. And there are other people that are venture capital firms that are growth stage focused. There are other people that run private equity shops. There are others that are SME focused from an investment standpoint and others that invest in public markets and mutual funds and hedge funds and the like. So if you ask the question, why weren't early stage investors interested in, in agri startups? I think it was, you know, a multifold challenge. Um, you know, I think number one, a multifaceted challenge. You know, I, I think number one, um, most most VCs in India had no connect to the agricultural sector, no understanding. They'd never worked in it. They'd never grown up in it. Right? You know, it's a fairly uh, rarefied group of fairly elite individuals. Right. Lots of ex McKinsey, you know, lots of uh, very, very well educated folks. And probably most of them hadn't spent time on Indian farms or grown up in rural India. So so you have a disconnect to the subject matter at the highest level. Um, Second, back in those days, there wasn't a lot of startup activity in the space. I think, you know, we were still in the early days of the startup ecosystem in India. Most people were solving the low-hanging fruit of e-commerce and B2B SaaS. There were some brave entrepreneurs in the agri space and, and, and we backed them. But back then with so little capital looking at ag, it was almost foolish to start an agri startup because you probably wouldn't be able to scale it. And so I think that inhibited a lot of people from doing that. And that's why I think, you know, Omnivore coming into this space and, and, and a few others back in those days was so catalytic because we proved to investors, hey, we're here. Like, if you have a good idea, we're here. You know, and I think third, what, what inhibits investors is, you know, just this sense that nothing ever changes, which is, of course, incorrect. You know, and part of that is exacerbated by journalism. Mm-hmm. Right. There is this, you know, the, the constant, you know, your your newspaper is the rare exception that moves beyond. Right. This notion of, you know, uh, agriculture that, that that uncouples agriculture and, and the and the notion of poverty. Right. Yes. Many Indian farmers are poor, but there is also agribusiness. There is also, you know, prog- there are also progressive farmers. They're, they are linked to global commodity markets. Right. So much of Indian journalism, right, teaches people that, you know, what do you do for farmers? Right. Like, okay, cool. Like, it's like we're permanently stuck in 1960, right, in our mental models, right, rather than understanding that, that agriculture is actually really complicated. And it's complicated everywhere. And farmers everywhere are dealing with these challenges. I think one of the things that, that people have a hard time understanding is that India is, is not, right, it, it, it's not a food deficit nation anymore. 
we have malnutrition issues for sure. But, you know, the, the mental, the green revolution mentality of like, we're one moment away from starving to death. And therefore we, you know, couldn't possibly export anything, right. Is something that, that continuously, um, basically undermines the, the potential development of the agriculture. Probably uh, uh, informs a lot of our hand wringing with uh, wheat exports currently as well. Right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like, or, 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 you know, the fact that people are calling for, for, for cotton export bans. Fundamentally, there is a, you know, a challenge of educating people that like the problems that our farmers face are now the problems of plenty. They're the problems that are faced by farmers in Europe and South America and North America. The difference is we have smallholders, they have broad acre large farmers, but it's still the same problem. Like, what do we do with the surplus, right? How do we tackle, how do we get into global markets? How do we do food processing? How do we, you know, bring additional, because, because you know, and this goes into a policy perspective as well. So much, so many of the discussions right? At least until a few years ago, we're like, how do we double production? Well, man, I don't want to double tomato production if we can't process those tomatoes, sell them to consumers or export them, because then we're just going to have tomatoes dumped on the sides of the road as periodically happens in Maharashtra. Are, are we right? still stuck in a production paradigm? Again, a vestige so, of- So uh, this of is actually one place, this is one place I give the Modi government tremendous credit, is they have, they have moved the dialectic around agriculture, away from production and towards farmer income, right? The whole thing, doubling farmer income, say what you will, whether it was successful, right? Whether, whether the data is the right data, but fundamentally they're looking at the right metric. So I think that's a big improvement, right? There have been, there have been other mistakes for sure, but I think at, at a high level, shifting that perspective away from productivity and towards farmer incomes is the right approach. Right. Mark, interesting that you touched upon the role of media. I often find that journalism about agriculture, as sort of as sporadic as it is, falls between two stools, uh, sort of romanticization of uh, farming or these Jai Jawan, Jai Kisan kind of uh, a, a mold or a perennially sick man. You know, uh, uh, it's it's all about distress or, you know, one of your colleagues coined this term, uh, Shubhadeep Sanyal, a partner at Omnivore, that it is the Meena Kumari of business sectors, right? So, right. I so, hadn't heard that. That's awesome. So that, that's the, so we have no middle ground. We are permanently stuck between these two poles of, yeah. of describing Indian journalism. Yeah. Instead of just understanding that, like, you can't generalize 25% of the economy. Okay. You can't generalize half the population, right? You have, you know, it, not everyone's a saint and not everyone's a sinner. It's, it's a huge number of people. And across you know, so many different geographies and value chains. It is infinitely complex. It's why it's so bloody interesting, right? It's why it's so challenging. And it's why so many of us have essentially given our lives to this. But to say, you know, there's no one size fits all, right? You know, India at the same time, right? We're now the world's largest exporter of shrimp. Do you know how remarkable that is? right? Over the course of the last 20 years, going and becoming the world's largest exporter. People used to think India's aquaculture sector was a joke. They used to think it was basically like a, you know, forgive me for saying it, like an Andhra scam, right? Um, and, and today, right, we are literally the biggest. Um, and it is amazing that that has happened, right? And, but that, that is happening in a country at the same time where we have, in some cases, subsistence agriculture, right? 
but you need to ask like hard questions. Why is it that we export, you know, India is the second largest producer of fruits and vegetables in the world. And we are, we export less than a billion dollars of fruits and vegetables. It's bizarre. It's crazy. Right. And, and again, we're not arguing about the right things, right? We're having these, it, it's just this just circular, endless debate that, that never goes into the direction of, you know, just how do we make this sector fundamentally stronger, fundamentally wealthier, stop patronizing people, right? And let them make money. What I find so frustrating, and I say this right? As, as, a, as a proud, you know, immigrant to India, someone who's built a lot of my life in, in this country, what I find so frustrating is everyone talks about supporting farmers. And then the second prices go up, we ban exports and screw them, right? Like, God forbid they should make any money when prices are high. You know, it's, it's, it's everything is urban price centric. Uh, uh, the urban consumer uh, is more important a because of one bloody municipal election in Delhi that was 25 years ago. Okay, that was 25 years ago, 24 years ago. But then more recently as well in Madhya Pradesh, there were riots because of crashing onion prices, you know, because the state didn't have the capacity to do anything or no, but I mean, because of high prices, the last time a government fell because of high prices was a long time ago. I actually think the other side of the same coin. Yeah, it's different. I I think of it as different. I think when, you know, I I, I think what's interesting in, in, in kind of retrospect right, is, is the fact that um, when, to be clear, I'm not revealing any political alliances, I have no politics, okay? Um, it, it, it is, I am not a citizen, it's not my place to comment. But I think one of the good things that Sharad Bavar did when he was Ag Minister was essentially saying, I am the Minister of Farmers, not the Minister of Cheap Food. Right. And I think that was a meaningful, the same way that this government has had a wonderful paradigm shift away from productivity and towards farmers' income. I think the last government did a very good job in allowing food price inflation to benefit farmers. But again, we see uh, knee-jerk reactions like banning of wheat exports or uh, a cotton export is in the anvil by all accounts. No, I get it, right? And delisting, my, my favorite is constantly delisting futures on the exchange because God forbid we should have like functional futures markets. It's not like the rest of the world, like there's no other country in the world that would be like, ah, oh, futures are going up, ban them. Like, I'm sorry, are you going to ban the thermometer because the patient is sick? Like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. I just think we need to treat agriculture like a business. And we need to treat it like a business at the level of small farmers, at the level of the industry. We need to understand that that we're never, and this goes to this issue of kind of development in the future of India. We have to modernize this sector because we're never getting rid of it. We're never going to be like China that just creates these like large captive farm projects, right? We can't. We're a democracy and we have tens of millions of smallholder farmers. So if we're going to have, you know, this pillar of the economy, right, needs to be put on the strongest footing possible, right? And that means technology, that means exports, that means processing, right? That also probably means specific targeted efforts for farmer welfare, 
Like one of my big obsessions is stop doing freaking farmer welfare through price subsidies and, and discounts on inputs and literally just hardwire cash into people's bank accounts, their Chandan bank accounts or their, you know, whatever bank account they have, their SBI account. I don't care, right? But, you know, if we, if we can do, if the PM Kisan can do 6,000 rupees a year, it can do 60,000 rupees a year, it can do one lakh a year. And I would rather do that. I would rather hardwire money into farmers' accounts and deliver actual farmer welfare rather than playing this bizarre Rube Goldberg device, right, with the MSP, with the fertilizer subsidy. Like, just stop. Like, just stop doing all of that. Just give farmers money as long as they're farming, and we can tell if they're farming with remote sensing, let's be clear, as long as they are farming, right, let them decide how they want to farm. And let's stop incentivizing absolutely terrible farming practices, cropping patterns that are systematically destroying our water table and our soil, right? And basically stuff that makes no economic sense without the constant meddling and intervention of the government. And by the way, I'm not right wing. I'm not a libertarian. I'm actually pretty left wing. But but seeing the right, right, of, right wing will uh, want to have farmers liberated from farming. Uh, in a large country like India, where we have nearly 130 million farmers, the number, the estimates vary. Uh, where do you stand on that? Is it possible to extricate farmers from agriculture and uh, make them into factory fitters or construction site workers? I So I think that is a process of decades. I think that's a process of generations. I think if you if you took the 130 million farmers in India today and said, how many of you intend to let your children be in agriculture? Zero. Five, five, I was going to say 5%, okay? There's some zamindar in like, in, in Jalgaon's like, yeah, sure, they can have the banana plantation. Cool. Um, but no, I mean, I think in practice, those intentions will meet with reality. But we will see generation after generation, the farming population shift. And we should, like, that's okay. But the point is that, like, we don't have those factory jobs right now. We don't have those service jobs right now. My, my feeling is if you really want to move people in rural India off of farms and into employment, it has to be in adjacent spaces. It has to be in food processing. It has to be in exports. It has to be in village-level entrepreneurship, right? It has to be working in agritechs. You can create, right? We've, we've only the government's only just unleashed the drone sector again to their credit. Right. I see a world where now a couple boys in every village, maybe some girls too, right, will be flying agricultural drones for, for, for monitoring and spraying in their villages. Right. There's a whole sector that's going to be born in the next few years there. And that and that is technical employment. It is skilled employment. And I think it's meaningful, satisfying work. And I think in general, that's what we're seeing with, with the agritech sector. If you look at who a lot of these agritech companies employ, if we look at, for example, who Dehat employs, 24 years old, graduate, can't find a job, right? Tried for civil service, didn't get it, right? Is too educated now to work on the farm, but isn't finding that job in urban India. There's a, you know, there, there, there's two things we can do. One is we can just let those people idle in unemployment until they create a revolution, right? Which is gonna, what's going to happen if we don't deal with that, that demographic. Or you put them to work in jobs that bring them dignity and, and meaning and training and development in rural India. 
and then we have a future. And I think a lot of agritechs, right, are, are beginning to do that, are really starting at mass to start employing, right, that, that group of, of, you know, educated, but, but, you know, educated rural, you know, young people that need opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mark, uh, for Omnivore, uh, you mentioned that in 2010-11, when you started off, it was quite a tough period. What was that inflection point when, you know, uh, you were convinced or you had the proof of concept that, you know, this is going to work, backing uh, startups in this sector can be a proper business in India? So, look, I was, I was an early believer. I, I remember meeting um, SkyMet for the first time mm-hmm. and being like, this is, you know, no one wants to fund this company, but India needs private weather forecasts and remote sensing. Um, you know, I, I think for many years, we, we weren't sure if we were right, right? If you, if you really look at our first four or five years, we, we continued to be like, you know, not sure if this was the right thing to do. Yes, we're backing some companies and some of them are quite good, but let's see. I think things fundamentally started to change in 2000. I would say 16, 17, 18, when we started to see significant investor follow-on into our portfolio companies. And when we started to see more and more VCs beginning to look at the space and take it seriously, um, you know, and, and when there's just, there has just been increasingly sophisticated investor interest at all levels of, of finance in India in, in the potential um, to unleash agriculture. Mm-hmm. Mark, by, by various accounts, this startup investment cycle seems to be winding down. Is this bad news for agri and agri-tech startups in India who anyway are less attractive to investors than say edutech, fintech or SaaS companies? I mean, that was dramatic, man. Um, I, I, I think that, I think that, look, the entire private market ecosystem is due for a correction. We've had 14 years without a correction. Um, so yeah, it's, it's probably going to be one. I don't know how brutal it's honestly going to be. Um, there are some people that think that this is going to be like, and let's be clear, these are different examples, 2008 in India. I spent 2008 in India. I remember what 2008 was like. It was like hitting a bump. It wasn't like crashing into the wall. You know, there are other people that think that this is going to be like 2000 was in the startup sector, which was a bloodbath. I don't think any of us know. I think in general, things have been crazy ever since COVID, right? And there's a correction going on right now. But whether it looks like 22 years ago or whether it looks like 14 years ago, I don't think anyone has any idea. What I will tell you is I actually think that despite the fact that that many VCs are new arrivals to, to agriculture, that interest in this sector will continue. I think we deal in the real world. We deal in a world of of farmers and retailers, of food, right? You know, I'm not sure, right, where one stable coin or another will be three months from now. But I can damn well tell you people are going to be eating wheat, right? There is a certain stability to, to the agricultural sector um, that, that, you know, may not be the fastest, but, but just keeps moving on because we are so intimately linked to the survival of the human race that I have confidence that even if it's a tough 
you know, year or two years or three years, that the best players in this space will continue to thrive. Maybe they'll focus a little less on growth and more on profitability, but there are real businesses being built here and there is real value for farmers being created here. And I am absolutely certain that will continue. Mark, uh, coming back to climate change mitigation, is it merely a fashionable buzzword now for Indian startups in this sector? Or is there some serious work happening? And how are investors like, like Omnivore trying to promote startups in this sector? Look, I, I think it's important. I, I don't think it's buzz. I think, do you know how hot it was a few weeks ago? Like, yeah, it was, yeah. It's not, yeah. It's not buzz. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think this is something that, that, you know, maybe it's buzz in the Netherlands. OK, I, I, I think to be clear, the Netherlands take it very seriously. If folks haven't noticed in India, if there's a front line in the battle on climate change, we are right up at it. Right. Climate change is going to play out different ways in different places. And probably there are some parts of Canada that are going to do better. There's no part of India that's going to be better because of climate change. And so I I don't think it's buzz. I think it's a very harsh reality. And I think there is an increasing awareness, thanks to things like COP26, that, you know, this used to all be like a discussion at government levels, right, where, you know, the developing world basically said to the developed world, yeah, we don't need to do anything because you guys, you know, this is all your, you cause this and don't don't slow down our development. And, um, And that was a perfectly fair argument, to be clear. Um, but I think we're all now moving into the situation of like, oh, crap, we really need to do something about this. And the reality is we're actually even more exposed than the developed world um, to, mm-hmm. to the negative impacts here. So I, I think in general, their investors are taking this very seriously. Startups are taking this very seriously. The climate focus of agritech startups that we see is way higher today than it was, you know, say a year ago or two years ago. And we're seeing more and more entrepreneurs that are coming out with, you know, ideas to uh, address climate change mitigation, but even more so uh, climate change resilience, right? I see way more adaptation resilient startups in India than mitigation ones. Could you give us a sense of some of the exciting companies that you're looking at that you may have backed in this space? Uh, sure. I mean, we have a pretty big portfolio at this point. And, but if I were to, to kind of look at some stuff that's especially exciting, you know, we have some of, of our largest companies are Dehat, which is transforming smallholder agriculture now across the country. You know, we have Intello Labs, which is bringing digital quality to the trade in, in perishable commodities, which was never there before. You could never trade perishable commodities the way you do uh, non-perishables. And so that's really interesting. We have AquaConnect, which is, you know, revolutionizing the aquaculture space in India and Mundi doing similar work in, in silk uh, and in textiles. And we have Fussel as one of the largest precision agriculture companies in India, helping you know smallholder farmers uh, reduce their usage of water and pesticide and improve their incomes. Uh, it's a pretty diverse portfolio at this point, and, and we're very proud of the work that our entrepreneurs are doing. From the outside, looking at the uh, agri-startup ecosystem, a lot of attention and money seems to be going towards the supply chain companies, you know, people solving the farm-to-fork problem. Is, as, as an investor, do you find enough work happening in the deep tech side of things? So I think that is coming up. Let's be clear. I see this as a long process, and, and I don't think it's right to just say, you know, um, 
you know, oh, all of these folks are just, you know, trading and, and none of this supply chain stuff is required. I think the supply chain stuff is actually very important. I think we have to build an organizational an informational layer over this hyper fragmented ecosystem of smallholder farmers for anything to happen, right? Um, it's really hard to get to, to reach those farmers and the, the companies that are doing all of this work to organize them, right? And, and to source from them and supply to them. I think that's that may be the low hanging fruit, but I think it's building critical infrastructure for future innovation. But we do see, we see lots of deep tech. Right, um, we still see probably more platforms, marketplaces, and fintech. But we're in, the number of deep tech startups we've seen has definitely been increasing, and we back them. We back Tartan Sense and Robotics and Fossil and IoT. We back Pixel and Satellites. You know, they're they're. I, I think in general, it took a while for you know we talked about like this process by which uh, investors became interested in agri. I think it took a while for investors to be interested in deep tech. And I think investors are still not interested in biotech, but I think there's an evolution of learning by investors that these spaces are, are transformative and important and, and they will become increasingly mainstream. Why is that? Why are investors skeptical about biotech? Oh, that that man. Would, would seem uh, very intimately connected to climate change resilience. Probably. Yeah, how many, how many, let me ask you a question. How many venture capitalists in India have a PhD in life sciences? Can't think of many. Cool. I can't think of one. Well, maybe one. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can go to the city of Boston in the US and find 50 VC firms that are just focused on life sciences that just do life science deals where every single partner has a PhD. There's actually like there, there's a lot of reasons why the, the life sciences space in India hasn't taken off yet. But the fact that 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 Indian VCs don't actually know how to evaluate a life sciences deal is definitely one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. I, I would assume a, a life sciences startup uh, would be more intimately connected to climate change resilience rather than a supply chain startup. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it depends. Um, I think farmer platforms are doing a huge amount of work. A lot of farmer platforms, which have supply chain elements, are also doing incredible amounts of extension to help farmers change the way they farm and therefore address, um, you know, both mitigation and 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 adaptation for climate change. But yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I I I wrote uh, an editorial about uh, about agri food life sciences for a well known. Um, publication that is not the Hindu um, and, uh, and, and received fantastic uh, feedback on that because I think there's a recognition that there's a real problem in our startup ecosystem that, you know, it's so hard for, for life science startups to really get an audience from anyone who understands them. And that's something that that Omnivore is trying to, to take a lead on. We're, we're in the process of, of bringing on board um, you know, a uh, an investment professional from that sort of very strong life sciences background, so so that we can lead from the front and start building this ecosystem. And I hope other firms will follow. I think it's very very important. When will we see the first uh, sort of listing of a very large agri tech startup? How um, far are we from that point? I would, I guess, I would say probably in what is it? Two, I'd say two thousand twenty four, two thousand twenty five. Any candidates that come to your mind? From my portfolio, Dehat, Arya, Reshamandi, but I think others out there, like I could see someone at the listing. Mm -hmm.
maybe eventually a way cool. Mark, thank you very much for joining us on Business Line Field Notes today. It's, it's great to do this. Goodbye and God bless. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.